This morning we're joined by Kyle Bartholik. He's the lead pastor at Christ Community Church in Ames, Iowa. Uh, they're a fellow EFCA church, and that's where Jennifer grew up, and uh, her, her parents were members there. And our father served in a few positions over many years. Uh, so Pastor Kyle graciously uh, offered to uh, drive up from Iowa this morning to preach uh, for us so that uh, Bruce and his family could be in Ames this morning. So, Kyle, we want to welcome you. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Well, good morning, City on a Hill. All right. Hey, uh, I just appreciate you guys. You respond to the call back from greeting time as well as my church does, okay? There's always like an additional 30 to 45 seconds after the, you know, the, uh, we have a big countdown clock that happens. I mean, literally it's counting down the, the time. And then after that ends and uh, we move to our video announcements, there's still like a good 30 seconds of rumbling as God's people are greeting one another. So that is a, that is a good, encouraging thing. Well, it's a joy to be here with you this morning. Had a good drive up. And uh, uh, early last week when Stan had passed away, when we got the call, um, Mark, my, uh, my executive pastor, was texting with Bruce, and he knows uh, Bruce from way back in the day. And he said, however we can help you. And Bruce said, pulpit supply, question mark? And we said, we're on it, man. We are on it. And so, uh, so it's a joy to be with you and joy just for for Bruce and Jennifer to be able to be present, fully present with their family today as they are both grieving the loss of Stan, but just celebrating his wonderful, wonderful legacy. Um, Bruce gave me the green light. We're in a series on Acts in our church. We're walking through the book of Acts. And so he said, hey, Kyle, if you don't want to, you don't have to preach Genesis chapter 38. You can just preach in Acts. And I said, that's great, man. That's what I'm going to do. And so this morning, my hope is... Uh, as we are gathered together around God's Word and together here, uh, is to stir up our affections for Jesus and the wonderful new life that God has established in us through Christ. And then secondly, to begin to, begin to make some connections from Genesis to the fulfillment of God's promise in Jesus as well. So this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Get it here? Whoop, am I, am I on? Going the right way. Oh, there it is. Acts chapter 15. All right, we'll get this as we go. Acts chapter 15. As you're turning there, just a quick stand story. So I, I came to Christ Community five years ago uh, as a lead student pastor. And over the last five years, we've been on an internal succession. And our lead pastor, our former lead pastor, uh, he resigned and uh, retired in January of 21. And so we've, we've done an internal succession plan along those five years. But when I came on staff, our Tuesday morning all-staff meeting coincided with a men's Bible study group that met at our church. And so after the staff meeting, as I would walk through the hallway back to my office, there was this group of three or four men that would meet after their Tuesday morning men's group, and Stan uh, was one of those guys. And so I would always stop to say hi and, and chat with this, uh, what really was the, as I affectionately called, the brain trust of the church. And uh, these are three older gentlemen, and it was always a wonderful combination uh, of deep theology, uh, uh, timely comedy, and just practical life wisdom that a young guy like me needed to hear. And, and Stan, I always just, uh, and if, you ever had, if you've ever met Stan or heard any stories of Stan, his, his picture in the obituary, he's got this big sun hat on, and he's standing by his tomato plants. He loved to garden. He was a phenomenal gardener, but he always just had this 
radiant joyfulness about him. And Stan would just drop these little nuggets of wisdom into the conversation, and he would just look at me, and he would just, he would just smile with this, with this smile that it was just a, a life of joy in Christ, you could tell, but was just, was just founded in and rooted in uh, walking with Jesus through, through the thick and thin things of, uh, of life, right? Uh, of many years uh, of walking with Jesus, parenting, family, jobs, all those kind of things. So Stan, Stan has, uh, and Lucille are, they are a bedrock part of our church. And so Stan leaves a wonderful legacy of gospel faithfulness and love for the Lord and love for God's people in our community uh, behind. And so uh, just be praying for them as they are celebrating Stan's life and honoring Jesus here this afternoon. Well, we're in Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 35 here this morning together. As we do that, before we do that, let me go ahead and pray uh, for the Holy Spirit just to join us to be our teacher here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for their love for you. We thank you for their, uh, uh, for their, their placing themselves uh, before the authority that is your word. Uh, Father, we thank you for, for Bruce and for Jennifer, Lord, we, and, the, and the Lamb family. Uh, Lord, we, we ask your grace upon them today. Uh, as they are preparing to celebrate Stan's life and to honor you, Lord Jesus, because of what you have done in and through. Uh, Lord, let, let, the, let the memories, let the praises uh, flow, the remembrances flow of, Lord Jesus, what you have done uh, in and through Stan. Lord, Holy Spirit, we also ask that you would join us this morning here, that you would be our teacher, that you would impress upon our hearts and our minds God's truth, so that it would shape us and transform the way that we live. Lord Jesus, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, one of the greatest felt needs of our current uh, American Western context is, is, is the need to be made whole. Okay? Uh, a short Google uh, search, and you'll find all kinds of uh, theological, sociological, uh, religious, philosophical, uh, fad diets, all kinds of solutions to the idea that we yearn deeply to be made whole. We want to be complete. And the good news is that we are not alone in that. In fact, as we pick up in this passage, what we're going to see is that in the first century and in the life of the early church, they yearned for wholeness or for completeness or for restoration as much as we do today. And that is the primary question of the text that we're in this morning. What does it take uh, for us to be made whole? And what we're going to see this morning is that we are made whole through grace. Specifically, it's God's grace. It's that God is the only one, is the sovereign king of the universe. He is the only one who can make us whole, who can restore us. In fact, if we rewind all the way back to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet Isaiah promised the one who would come, the prince of peace. As we were in Advent, the build-up to Christmas here, I don't know if you guys walked through any of those passages. We did at my church. And there's this really unique aspect. When, when Isaiah promises this prince of peace in Hebrew, it's the prince of shalom. And this idea, this Hebrew word of shalom, which is literally translated as peace in English, simply doesn't mean a ceasing of conflict. It implies that but more completely, it means the one who will make us whole, the one who will restore us. Isaiah long promised that one, that one that God long promised in Genesis chapter 3, 
15 in response to the fall and in response to man's rebellion that he would send one who would crush the head of the serpent. God would long send, he long promised a Savior, a Messiah, one who would make us whole. And that is the exact picture that we get here this morning. We are only made whole through God's grace. Let me go ahead and, uh, and begin reading here from Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Uh, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. I want you just to pause there. I want you to circle or note this, uh, this, this sentence in your Bible. This is the first uh, note of the problem that we are going to face, that, that Paul and company are facing here in Acts chapter 15. We've got some brothers. They are Christians, uh, and they are teaching that you must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. So what else do we know about these brothers? They are of the Jewish tradition. They follow the law. Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small uh, dissension and debate with them, just pause there for a second. Uh, if we ever think that in our churches today, if in our, uh, our context that the small theological skirmishes and, and conflicts arise and they didn't have those in the early church, here it is right here. They were fighting over doctrine even in the early church. So Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, no small debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought, the, and brought great joy to all the brothers. As they described what God was doing, this redemption, this making people whole, it brings them great joy. Now, it would pause right here because in, in the preceding passages, Paul and Barnabas are nowhere near Jerusalem at this point. They are actually, as we left off in chapter 14, they were as far north as the central steppes of Turkey. They are hundreds upon hundreds of miles away. They have come back at the end of 14 to the church in Antioch of Syria, this sending church that sent them on their first missionary journey. Uh, but now they're making their way south. However, if you noted here the way Luke describes it, he says in verse 2 that they were to go up to Jerusalem. If you look at a map, they're traveling south, so we would say that they're going down. So why does Luke say that they're going up? Here's just a fun Bible trivia fact for you. It's because Jerusalem is a literal city on a hill. Jerusalem is, has, is the highest point of elevation of anything around. So as you came to Jerusalem from the south, from the north, from the east, or from the west, you went up to Jerusalem because you were gaining elevation. Even though Paul and Barnabas and company are traveling south, they're going up to Jerusalem because it is a literal city on a hill. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, note that, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Again, the problem is restated. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the, the same 
Holy Spirit, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them and among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, James, this is the brother of Jesus, by the way, James, who did not believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, until the resurrection. James, was, he only saw his brother as a physical, fleshly brother, yeah? Uh, uh, some sort of inspired or, uh, or, uh, or uh, exceptionally gifted uh, preacher, teacher, religious man. But James was not convinced, the very brother of Jesus was not convinced of his divinity until the resurrection. And now here he is. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he is, he is some of the, he's one of the heavyweights of the early church. We've got Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James. The theological heavyweights are here to answer this question once and for all. And what James is going to do is James is going to relate back to the Old Testament how God long promised this plan of salvation. And so the very first thing that we see as we are in this Acts, in Acts chapter 15 this morning is that it was no small debate. The issue at hand is not a small issue. It is the question of who can be saved and how. Uh, this, is, this is a question about the process of salvation. And ultimately, there are two conflicts that we see that, we see that are present in this question. One, on the very surface level, there's this theological uh, conflict. This is the question about um, who can be saved and how, right? Uh, who does the saving? Well, it's clearly God. That's, there's no argument there in the text here. There's no argument in the passage that it's anybody but God that does the saving. But the question is, well, how are we saved? Are we saved just through faith? Or are we saved by faith and then a conversion to the law and to the works of the law? And so there's this, there's this surface-level theological question, but there is much deeper than that a social conflict. There's a sociological question because if you noted uh, here, who, who are the ones teaching that the, these Gentile Christians must adhere to the works of the law of Moses? Well, it's, it's Jewish believers. And if we remember this thing of Christianity, it started in Jerusalem, and it started as a primarily Jewish movement that now has spread farther than they could have ever imagined. All the way, Paul and Barnabas have carried the gospel, the good news of Jesus, all the way north to central Turkey by this point. And we heard in verse 3 that when Paul and Barnabas were traveling south, what did they talk about? Well, they, they talked about how God, the very God of the universe, the very God of Moses, right, and that through Jesus, he was restored storing even the Gentiles. And if we look at the scope of, of, of the book of Acts, Luke is the author. He's the author of, his, of the Gospel Luke and of Acts. It's a two-volume series. He's presenting the person of Jesus and all that he does in Luke, the Gospel. And then in Acts to Theophilus, he's writing the, the work of the resurrected Jesus, the power of the resurrection in the early church. And in chapter 28, verse 28, Luke will conclude the book of Acts by saying, it is the power of the grace of God to save 
even the Gentiles. There's this hyperbolic, there's this, this large nature, this, this sort of, even they will believe this. Even they are included. How wonderful, how good, how great is God because even the lowliest, even those who weren't of the right house, of the right lineage, of the right ethnic group would be brought into the family of God. And so those who were historically Jewish here are now raising the issue. Uh, we saw it in verse 5. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they say, you have, to, you have to adhere to the works of the law if you're going to be a Christian. That's how you are really saved. That's how it's really cemented or made good in you. And so this creates a sociological conflict because if you have Gentile believers who are not adhering to the law, and you have Jewish believers who are adhering to the law, and these Jewish believers are ritually clean, but they're to come together in table fellowship around the Lord's Supper. But when you have ritually unclean and ritually clean people, they cannot be together. There is a distinctly serious problem that is at hand. And what this means is that these, these, uh, these Jewish believers, these, the party of the Pharisees, as we'll hear, they were heaping a burden that was never meant to be heaped upon Gentile brothers because the works of the law does not save us. Our works do not save us. It is the grace of God that redeems us. It is our, God's unmerited favor that we receive from him through Jesus that brings us into abundant new life. And so there is this very deeply sociological problem because in the first century, fellowship or friendship specifically around uh, the table around a meal. This morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to take communion together, which was a very, a very communal activity in the early church. And so when they would gather together for that, you had groups that were clean and groups that were unclean, and, and it created serious problems. Because in the first century, to eat together, to be together, to be in fellowship, it, it was an affirmation of personhood. It meant that I see you and I affirm who you are, all that you do and all that you've gone through. And for these brothers who were uh, adhering to the law of Moses, that was a step too far because the law of Moses wasn't just an abstract theological idea. It wasn't just a conversation of contemporary music versus hymns, right? Where we talk about musical preferences and styles and those kind of things. This is a very divine decree. This part of the Pharisees, they saw it as a divine decree. God gave us the law so we must absolutely adhere to it. And while we know that the law is not bad, even Jesus, when he came, he does not dismiss the law, get rid of the law. He says something else, though. He says that his yoke, his burden, they are light and easy. We'll talk about that in a moment. But there is a significant conflict at hand, and it is, it is around this idea of fellowship and this idea of personhood. And yet the church has been expanding. The good news of Jesus has been restoring all kinds of people back into wholeness. It's been restoring communities. It's been giving people hope and joy and new life. In fact, again, verse 3, when Paul and Barnabas are talking about it, it brings great joy. But you heard Peter here. Uh, if you highlight verse 7, Peter had a vision in chapter 10. He's with Cornelius. This was a, a longstanding uh, conviction, by the way, or conversation. We're about 15 years into the life of the early church. Peter, a while back ago, was with Cornelius, a Gentile. He's on Cornelius' roof. He has this vision, a white sheet that comes down. It's filled with bacon cheeseburgers because bacon cheeseburgers are not kosher. 
And God says to him in this vision, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter goes, I can't because I've never eaten anything that's unclean. And God says, why are you calling what I've made clean unclean? Peter, why are you calling what I've made clean unclean? And if we rewind to Acts chapter 10, what we find is Peter's vision is not about food, it's about people. And what God has said to Peter in that moment about Cornelius and his household and about the Gentiles, this is why Peter says here in verse 7, and, excuse me, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He'd seen it. He'd seen God redeem those who are out of the house of Israel. And here, verse 11, I want you to circle. I want you to highlight verse 11 because what convinced Peter that God made the Gentiles clean, that he brought them into the fullness of his house, into the fullness of his family, he adopted them completely and they were heirs of God's grace, heirs of God's salvation, just as much as the people of Israel were. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus as they will. Why? Because in verse 8, God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he gave us. Peter remembers back to the day of Pentecost in the very beginning of the book of Acts. God filled them with his Spirit. God watched him fill the Gentiles with his Spirit. And God says, I've made, I've made them clean. I've redeemed them. I've made them whole. And so the question here is, what, what is salvation? Or what, re, what is required for, for salvation? It's, and it's faith and faith alone. Again, verse, verse 11, I want you to circle that. We believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. How? By faith. Through grace, by faith. That's the bedrock of our salvation. That's the bedrock of the gospel. In fact, we could never, ever earn God's love. We are saved by God's grace, through faith. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever had an experience of grace? And grace is this, grace is unmerited favor. I don't know if you've ever had an experience of grace, or maybe you've had the opposite. You've uh, had the experience of a lack of grace, and you can relate to how unlivable life is under a lack of grace. Uh, when I was a junior in college, I was, uh, I was taking, um, part of my background is psychology, and I was in a cognitive behavioral psychology class. I kept taking more and more psychology because it was interesting. So I've got a background in biblical studies and theology, and then I had this other degree in psychology because I just kept taking more, and then my advisor one day was, said, hey, you've taken enough. If you take two more classes, you, you have another, another major. And I was like, oh, that works out, right? So I was in this class, cognitive behavioral psychology, and Dr. Robinson, phenomenal professor, uh, he, he had told us at the beginning, all of our work was building up to this final presentation that was worth 80% of our grade. And you could only turn in your final project at the final, the, uh, during the final week, during our allotted time slot, right? And, and so uh, we knew it. We were all working. We had marks along the way. We had to achieve. Dr. Robinson was phenomenal. We knew the plan. We knew it was at stake, all of it. Well, there was a, there was a situation that had come up with my family back in Pennsylvania, my best friend had actually passed away tragically and unexpectedly. And I looked at the university policy. And the only way I could miss my final is if it was for a funeral member of a, uh, of a family member, right? Well, my best friend was not my family member, but I was convicted and knew I needed to be there. So I told Dr. Robinson, I looked at the, I looked at the university manual, I knew the policy, I knew what I was risking. 
And I know that I wouldn't hold it against him if he failed me because I wasn't going to make the final. I would be back in Pennsylvania. I, I knew exactly what I was doing. And Dr. Robinson knew the university policy and he was kind of like, okay, if that's your decision, is there any, is there any way you can, you can make the final and then leave? And I said, no, I can't. I have to get back now. Otherwise, I'll miss, I'll miss the service. And so as I was leaving Chicago, I was driving from Chicago back to Pittsburgh, my phone rings, and I don't know the phone number, but I picked it up, and it was Dr. Robinson. And he said, hey, Kyle, I thought about it. I'm going to allow you to turn in your final project late. In fact, I'm going to give you a two-week extension from the day of the final when it would normally do so that you can get it to me. And, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna, I'll, I will count it for you. And I said, Dr. Robinson, you don't have to do that. I know that that probably puts your job in jeopardy. And he said, no, no, I'm going to do that. That was a, 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 an, ex, an immense experience of grace. It was unmerited favor. He didn't have to do that. He would have been in the right to fail me for the class. And I knew exactly what was happening. Yet he gave me this gift of unmerited favor. Have you ever had an experience like that? And with God, that is the very experience of our salvation. When we think back to Genesis, when we think back to the garden, that, that God had made the universe and all that was in it, he spoke it into existence. And after it was made and he had said it was mahod, which is the Hebrew word for good, he said everything that he made was good. And then he placed Adam and Eve in it. And then he said it was very good. And so Adam and Eve walked into this world of flourishing. They walked into this world that everywhere that they looked, they saw the fingerprints of a God who loved them and could provide for them and that they could trust and they could walk in confidence with. Everywhere around them. And yet, what did they do? They said, we want to take what's not ours. We are the kings of our own lives, of our own universes. We are sovereign over ourselves. And what did they usher in? They ushered in brokenness. And yet, who makes the first move in the face of that brokenness? It is God who makes the first move. It is he who dwells near them, appeals to them. Genesis literally says that, it, that God waited to the cool of the day, which literally means, which is when we translate it to understand it within the context, that God waited until they were ready to talk. How beautiful is that? The very God of the universe whom they had just rejected, he's the one that makes the first move. He's the one that makes a way for them to be restored in relationship with him. He's the one who will ultimately promise salvation. It is by God's grace, his unmerited favor. We could not win it, earn it, or gain it any other way. God simply gives it to us. Why? Because he loves us and he wants us to be in fellowship with him. And so faith, what is faith? If it's by God's grace, through faith, faith is this forward-looking trust that is rooted in God's past provision. You're in Genesis right now as a church. In Genesis, the family line gets a little weird. Is that safe to say? Right? We got dads who have favorite children, husbands who have favorite wives. It is a calamity. It is a train wreck of a mess. And these are supposed to be God's redeemed people that when the nations eventually will look at them, they're going to go, oh, the way that you do life, the way that you live, the way that you love one another is so very good. We want to be like you. That's what God is carving aside for himself, all right? We are, we are watching the train wreck happen. It's getting a little weird. It's a little hard to see how God will ever be able to provide a Savior or a Messiah, one who will redeem broken humanity through this family line, and yet God does. Because the story of the Bible is not one of blind faith. It is always one where we look back and we say, remember what God did. Remember when he showed up. Remember how he provided. 
And so faith is this forward-looking trust that is rooted in what God has already done. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11, you know this. Those in the Old Testament, it was their future forward faith that was counted towards them as righteousness. It was that God would save them because they had trust in what God had done. Yet the challenge, one of the challenges for you and for me today, for all who claim Christ as Savior, uh, Henry Nouwen, he, he notes this. He says that one of the tragedies of our lives is that we keep forgetting who we are. We keep forgetting who we are. Those who came to Christ here, whether they were Jewish brothers, this part of the Pharisees, they forgot that it was God's grace that brought them into the family. It wasn't their works. It wasn't their efforts. It wasn't their creativity or their ingenuity. It was God's grace that brought them. They forgot that identity of being a people of grace. The Gentile believers, they've experienced it for the first time because they've always been cast out. They've always been othered. They've always been cut apart. And now they're brought into the fullness of the family through Christ and what good news it is. You see, there's a danger that, uh, that we face today. It's uh, one of elevating secondary or tertiary things. Right? We, we, we tend to have this habit within church of making secondary or tertiary, lower-level doctrines that are important, but they're not primary, they're not essential. We tend to make those things, we, we elevate them, right? The Calvinism and Arminianism debates, the worship styles, the um, all kinds of different things. We could go through it. We said, unless you believe this, then you can't belong to the people of God. And you go, well, the church is 2,000 years old and we're not a monolith. We've debated these things for many years, okay? Um, and so we have that danger. But the, the greater danger that I think is the temptation of work. So Christian brothers and sisters, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, what you'll know is that there is a propensity for us to uh, fool ourselves that our works or our performance earns us God's love and his grace and his affection and his approval. There is this temptation to think our moralism or our commitment to, to the commands of Scripture, the commands of Scripture are not bad. They are given to us for our flourishing. When we do life God's way, Life tends to go better, but we, tend, we can easily delude ourselves. Uh, we can easily deceive ourselves that it's our works that are earning us God's love. And, and yet it's not. Uh, so what is the cure of that? What is the solution? Well, is to come square face to face with the freedom that is in the gospel. Let's keep reading here. James is going to appeal back to the Old Testament. Let's pick up in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment, the judgment of the ruling group here, they say it is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Literally, we should not heap un unbearable burdens upon them. Uh, but they should, we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Uh, for from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in, the, in every Sabbath in the synagogue. Realizing, they're acknowledging that, that, that the Jewish people are quite all over the place. And if we want unity within the body, we've got to recognize part of the tradition. And part of the tradition, part of the law, is still very good for our flourishing, both in community, but also in our own lives. And yet, we're not to overburden one another. In fact, if we, uh, if we keep going, what, what Paul is going to end up saying, and Paul and Barnabas, as they go, as they're sent, they're going to say here, verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. This is a Holy Spirit-led process. 
as they're speaking to the Gentile churches, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. There's freedom in the gospel. We're not burdened by the law. We're not burdened uh, by our own performance or our own appeals to perfection. See, in the gospel, we are not only freed from, but we are also freed for. Paul will go on. He'll write to the church in Galatia. He'll say to them, he'll say, you started so well. You began your faith in Jesus so well. You knew that it was a gift of grace through faith that earned you salvation, uh, brought you into the family of God, began to make yourselves whole. He took away, he took away your, your selfishness and your quarreling. He gave, you, he gave you hearts and attitudes of patience and love and kindness and joy. Uh, but then, then, then Galatia, then, oh, Galatians, you were, I love this, you were bewitched. <laughs> you were sold a bag of goods. And I don't know why you let anyone come in here and sell you something that's not true. There was this, this other group that came in and started teaching about circumcision, the works of the law. And the church in Galatia thought, well, we had a good start, but maybe now we really need to cement our relationship with God through the law. Paul says, no, it's not true. The church in Colossae, Paul is going to write to them the same thing. Jesus just wasn't the good place to start. He is everything. He is preeminent. He is supreme over all things. And so in Paul and Galatians, he answers, what are we freed from? Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, we are freed from the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are things like uh, our sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger and rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, all kinds of things. These things that do not lead us to flourish in our interpersonal relationships. When we are in Christ, this gift of grace through faith, it, we, are, we are transformed from that and we are transformed for. We are not just set free from the works of the flesh, but we are also set free for the fruit of the Spirit. Paul will go on, he'll say this, he'll say, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see, as we are yearning to be made whole, Paul gives us this, this litmus test, this example of what that looks like. And he says, we're not just freed from the burden of the law that points out our failures and our brokenness, but we are freed for life in the Spirit. We are set free to bear patiently with one another, to be kind to one another, to have gentleness, to have self-control. These are marks of this, of this life of being made whole in Christ. And it all, again, centers around not our performance or our efforts, but around God's gift of grace through Jesus for all people. So how, how do we walk in the freshness of freedom of the gospel? Now when he'll go on, he continues to write, and he continues to say this, he says, one of the greatest challenges of the spiritual life is to receive God's forgiveness. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever been in, in prayer and, and as you ask for God's forgiveness, yet there's something that you just feel like uh, there's this burden there that you're just, you're just not experiencing the freshness of forgiveness as you did at the moment of salvation. At the moment that you met Jesus and you gave your heart to him of how you felt uh, that, that new life rush into you and that joy to fill you up. But one of the greatest challenges that faces us is that we, we do not experience the freshness of forgiveness. So how do we do this? 
I think, I think one of the ways that we do this is that we commit to confessing prayer. We, we commit to confessing our sins to God and we allow him to do business, as, as David says in Psalm 19, to uncover the hidden parts of my heart. That we sit before the Lord and we allow him to look at us and look over us and to call us out of our sin and up into righteousness. Uh, we ask God to reveal these things for us. And here's what I find in my life, my life personally as I do that, that, that as, God, as God begins to expose the things that are hidden in here, I don't know, have you ever done this? You've gone to prayer and you're like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to apologize. I know I'm supposed to ask for forgiveness, but I'm not really sure if I did anything wrong today. Anybody have that problem or is that just a me problem? It is an us problem, isn't it? It's okay, safe space, we can say it. As you allow, as we follow God, as we follow Jesus, sometimes we become blind to our own selfishness, our own self-centeredness, the own patterns of, of sins that we begin to dismiss and we say that are okay. Yet as we walk into confessing prayers, we expose our hearts to God and we say, Lord Jesus, come in, power of the Holy Spirit, come in and do business in me, call me out of my sin and up into righteousness. As God does that in my life, well, I begin to be way more gracious and way more patient and way more understanding of sins in other people's lives that I can see, right? Why? Because God has forgiven me and it wasn't rooted in my performance that earned me God's grace or earned me uh, adoption into God's family. And, and if I'm a work in progress, I'm gonna be far more okay with other people who are a work in progress. And you see, again, we are made whole through grace and we should not ever forget that. This is a story all the way from Genesis 3, 9, all the way through to Revelation chapter 20. In Genesis, we see things start to get off the rails. In Judges, they go even further off the rails. Once they finally get a king, we go, oh, is it going to be? Nope, it's not going to be good. <laughs> it's not until Jesus comes. And we are living in this in-between time till we wait for Revelation 21 to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back and he restores us into the fullness of life in him completely. We're living in this in-between moment, yet we can experience the wholeness, the salvation, the newness of life in Christ. And we are set free from the burden of performance because of God's grace. Let's be a people that live in that grace and be reminded of God's grace each and every day. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for, again, this morning. We thank you for what you've done. Lord, we are about to celebrate communion. About to remember that it literally was not our work on the cross, but you, Lord Jesus, you are the one who, who bore our sin. You literally took on the fullness of our separation and you felt it on the cross so that we could be reunited with our Father in heaven, that we could be restored, that we could experience new life here and now and the promise of it completely when you come back. Lord, as we, uh, as we walk towards that table, would you continue to make us people of grace and would you continue to remind us of your goodness and love for us. It's never been about us. It's always been about what you have done. Put those memories fresh in our minds. Jesus, your great name we pray. Amen.